and we'll be in Luke chapter 20 if you want to turn there. And let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are a holy God. You are awesome in all your ways, that just beholding you is a privilege. How gracious you are to receive us as your children, that we as children of God can worship you in spirit and in truth because it's your spirit who fills us. It's you who regenerates us and makes us new creations. And thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that Regardless of how we feel or what's happening in the world, we are safe and secure and provided for. We have everything in you that pertains to life and godliness, and I pray you would fill us with great joy to come before you, to worship you, to, uh, to worship you with our hearts, making that sweet melody that you receive. And uh, thank you, Lord, that though our voices aren't perfect, uh, you have made us as you desired, and you will receive that praise uh, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I was a bit nostalgic as I was going through this message, thinking about childhood and, and how I learned what authority is. And it's like if my mom or dad directed me to do something, I was obliged to do it. My parents had authority and the right to determine when it was time for dinner or time for bed, time for a bath, whether I liked it or not. Uh, and if I learned that if my brother set up some dominoes or wooden blocks, he had the authority to knock them down. It was not for me to do. If he gave me permission, I was allowed to do it, but those were his. And, and we knew whose toys were whose, like those are my toys and those are your toys. And we were encouraged to be generous and to share, but because it was yours, you could withhold it for your reasons. So you had authority over it. And most of the early questions of authority I had were solved by my parents and ownership. But as I grew older, that circle of authority expanded to include teachers and the boss at work and the laws of government and, and overall, God. And God's given everyone the choice if we will acknowledge his authority and right to rule over us or if we will use, uh, if we'll use the gracious He's gracious to give us a will and a choice if we'll go our own way or choose his way. And there was one surefire way that something my brother or sister said would get action out of me. It was if it was prefaced with, mom or dad said, do this, right? If it's just them telling you to stop doing something, like, what's that? Like, but I knew my parents, they, uh, they had disciplinary rights they had responsibilities and had demonstrated a will to act. And if I did not comply, if I did not quickly do what they said, even if it was my brother or sister telling me on their authority, there would be some answering to do. Um, and God did this with his people. He sent them prophets and priests to teach them from the word. He, he, then they would say, thus says the Lord. They would say, this is God speaking to us, so we need to listen to him. We need to obey him. Often the Israelites disregarded the word of the prophets because they didn't believe they were from God. And then Jesus appears on the scene, and he doesn't say ever, thus says the Lord. He says, it has been written in the law, but I say to you. Total shift Jesus never said, thus says the Lord, because he spoke with the authority of God. He wasn't just speaking for God, he was speaking as God. And no one spoke with that kind of authority. He said, 
If anyone hears my words and does them, I will liken him to a man who builds his house on the rock. Or concerning judgment, he says, on that day they will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them. So he puts himself in that position of God. And the people were amazed at the doctrine of Jesus. They're like, no one spoke like this man. No one's ever had this kind of authority. So Jesus, in our text, he has arrived at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Last week we talked about how he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, which fulfilled scripture. The people cried out the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, oh save, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus wept over the city because of the destruction that would come because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. They didn't recognize who he was, that he was the son of God, the promised Messiah, the anointed one sent to save sinners. They were blind with unbelief. Then he went into the temple. He drove out those who bought and sold because they had made his father's house, which should have been a house of prayer, a house of merchandise, a den of thieves. And in Luke 19, 47, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus had great fame and popularity, and he just captured the imagination of the people. They were very interested to hear what Jesus had to say, and the priests and scribes could not intervene publicly because it would mar their reputation with the people. We, we begin in Luke 20, starting verse 1, where it says, Now it happened on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. And spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? This chapter is marked by many occasions. We won't get to them all today. Uh, when Jesus was confronted and he was questioned about his authority. And he confounded his questioners at every turn. And as Jesus, it says in the passage, he taught the people and preached the gospel. Suddenly he was confronted. It's like they, it's the, the word is like they stepped over him. So they came upon him suddenly, this group of people, and they confronted him. They demanded, you tell us what authority, who gave you this authority? And what authority is this? And he, um, they, they saw this as their turf that they needed to protect. Jesus is an outsider in his father's house. And uh, think about this. When Jesus preached the gospel, because it says he preached the gospel, there's no record of him using four spiritual laws or the Romans road or a formulaic approach to salvation. He didn't package doctrinal truth like we can, like an old sandwich that just is in the bottom of your backpack, that when someone's hungry, you're like, oh, I've got something in there, and you drag it out and it looks a little questionable, but hey, we'll just, it's better than nothing, right? Um, and we can almost forget that the book we're reading is, it's the gospel of Luke, and it makes the same claims as Matthew, Mark, and John that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah promised of God to come. He has come to seek and to save lost sinners. The gospel has everything to do with who Jesus is that he's God in the flesh. 
When Jesus was revealed to Israel through the baptism of John, remember what happened. There was the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came and alighted upon him. A voice from heaven, God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus said, I and my father are one. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and there was no way to the Father except through him. He's really the personification of the gospel. And we can make a mistake to exchange soteriology, which is the study of the process of salvation, or what, we have to, what our response needs to be to be saved, with the gospel, which is derived from Christology, which is who Jesus is. Okay, so those are two separate things. Believing Jesus is God and placing our faith in him, that is the gospel. That Jesus is Lord and Savior, that precedes our response of repentance and denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following him. So it has to start with who Jesus is. That's what Jesus was preaching, and he preached it throughout his entire earthly ministry, that he is God. When he says, I and my Father are one. They were, everyone who met Jesus was confronted with who they believed he was if they believed he was the Christ or not, if they would trust him or not. Jesus never provided a step-by-step process to salvation because Jesus is life. He is salvation. Simply faith in him. And we're blessed to have the Old and the New Testaments to learn of Jesus, his plan, God's plan of salvation, and it's perfectly legitimate in sharing the gospel to include a lot of these verses, passages that include God's plan of salvation, repentance, Jesus' death, his resurrection, the call to deny ourselves and to follow him. But it's not a system. Think for a moment, um, hypothetical situation, of course, that there's a young man, he's like, I'd like to be married. How do I go about doing that? And you give him kind of a checklist of things to do. Like, well, you got to find the right woman, number one. Then fall in love. And then you need to ask her out at some point, pop the question, and then buy a ring, set a date, and boom, you're married. You get what you want. And that's what we can do with the gospel. We can say, oh, you want to go to heaven? This is what you have to do. Rather than pointing to Jesus and focusing on who he is, that he is God, and that when we believe in him, we will be saved. And having believed in him, we will be born again. And now that we're born again, we can repent. We can, we can walk in his ways. We can deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him because it's his work within us. It's not us working to achieve our end. Jesus came and preached repentance in the kingdom of God. Jesus was revealed in Scripture to be the way of salvation. He is like the way, right? He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he's provided the means to know God personally. And he did all these signs and wonders. Like there's tons of evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. And he, he alone has the words of life. If Jesus, if, if the gospel becomes about what we need to do to be saved, we can miss the way who is Jesus. The good news is when we believe on the Lord, Jesus Christ, we are born again and saved. Now, the Jewish 
priests and rulers, they confronted Jesus. They want to know, who is, whose authority are you speaking on? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus did what he often did when facing a dishonest question by hypocrites, is he asked a probing question of his own. He like goes right to the heart. And he says, the baptism of John, was that from heaven or from men? Verse 5, and they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The question Jesus asked was not a difficult question. Surely these learned men who had spent their lives in the scriptures um, would have, and, and they went to John and they heard his teaching, they would have had an opinion, they would have had a judgment uh, based upon the word. But instead of answering Jesus, what do they do? They huddle up and they say, how should we respond to this? Hmm. They knew that Jesus put them on the back foot because they say, if we answer from heaven, he knows we didn't follow him. We didn't believe him. So that, that exposes us as hypocrites. But if we say of men, we fear the people. They'll kill us. They will stone us because they're all convinced he was a prophet. So they tried to weasel out of it by feigning ignorance. They weren't ignorant, but they just said, we don't know. We're not sure. And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If they didn't believe that John the Baptist was from God, they certainly wouldn't believe the one he pointed to, Jesus, was from God. And because they didn't respect the authority that John had received from God, they wouldn't respect the authority that Jesus spoke as the Son of God. If they didn't believe John was a prophet, how could they believe Jesus was a Christ, the Christ when it was God who sent them both? This shows us that all questions asked by men, not all of them are worthy of being answered. If God asks us a question, we should answer it. We should examine our hearts, but not all questions asked by men are worthy of being answered. And it made me think, what considerations do I take into account when I answer a question? And it's a good thing for you to consider too. Is it the fear of people and what people, kind of gauging the feelings of the room or who's asking me? who's asking me could impact the way I answer, where I could try to conceal something about Jesus because I know they're not favorable towards him. So I'm going to kind of withhold a bit of what I really think or what the truth is. But if we truly love Jesus Christ, if we trust him, let's acknowledge the relationship we have with him, that he is our savior, whether we imagine people will receive us or stone us for saying that, Proverbs 27, 5, it says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. It would be to our shame if we were to conceal our love for Jesus around those who hate him when he publicly demonstrated his love for us on the cross on Calvary. Continuing in Luke 20, verse 9. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. 
Jesus turns from the rulers who, ref- who asked questions but were refusing to answer questions, and he began to teach a parable, teach through this parable. And in the parable, there was a man who owned a vineyard, and he, went, he leased it out to some vine dressers and went to a distant land. And it wouldn't be an unfamiliar arrangement, a business deal. Uh, it provided land and a living for the farmers, but it would also provide the, the produce of the ground, and the, the owner could require some of that fruit. And there was no question who owned the vineyard, who had, that the owner had the right over everything they did, that he had a right to the fruit. And though the owner had been away for a long time, it still was his. It hadn't passed. The ownership hadn't passed. So the authority was with the owner. The vine dressers disregarded this. At the time of vintage, it says he sent some ser- a servant to ask for some of the fruit. He's not demanding all of it. And this would have been totally expected It was part of the deal. You till the land, you tend the vines, and you provide some of it at the owner's request. He requests some, but they refuse to give it to him. And they beat up his servant and sent him away empty. The second one, they scourged and they shamed. The third one is the Greek word that we get the the base from traumatized. So the guy's got PTSD because he showed up and they beat him up, they embarrassed him, they humiliated him and sent him away empty. So it's like getting worse and worse each time. And the vine dressers, they were ungrateful, they were unthankful, they had broke the deal. Uh, and the patience of the owner, it was met with hatred, brutality. Everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, it had a purpose. And he doesn't just pick out this scene of the vine dresser and the the owner from thin air, the Jews were very familiar with Isaiah 5. If you could turn there, Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1, where Israel is compared to a vineyard. And so this was very instructive. It was insightful, and it, it, it fits very well with what was occurring in Jerusalem at this time. So Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. It's pretty cool that the people that Jesus talked to, they had the law and they were familiar with it. They, their minds would have gone to a lot of these passages and it would have had a lot of significance to them at that time. So Isaiah 5 verse 1 it says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help." 
The context in Isaiah is one of coming judgment because the people had broke God's covenant that he made with them. They had broken his commandments, and he had given everything they needed to be a nation that would produce the fruits of justice and righteousness. He's like, you know the right way to live because I've told you. I've commanded you what's the right way to live. I've set out a framework for you to worship and obey me. And God did everything to establish his people just like an owner would his vineyard. He chose the best spot. Like if you had a big plot of land, you would choose the part of it that's most suitable for grapes. And not only that, but he built the tower and he, has, he bought the best kind of vine. So he, he knows what he's doing. He's buying the best for that region, digs a wine press. Now, a wine press would be a press that would go into a vat, and it would be carved out of solid rock so that it wouldn't leak. It would be able to keep all of the, the juice that was squeezed. He, he was so confident that it's going to be a great vintage because of all this prep work that I've done. But when the time came for grapes, it produced these poison berries. So wild grapes in the, and that's what the Hebrew is, it's poison berries. So he's like, I'm looking for grapes and I'm expecting them and I have, I'm anticipating a great harvest and what's with these poison berries? Where did they come from? How did this happen? Like, where do we go from here? And God said, what more could I have done than I did? But I'll tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to tear it all down. I'm going to allow it to be trampled. It's going to be a ruin. I'm going to remove that hedge of protection. I'm going to allow it to be trampled underfoot. It will become dry and full of thorns. And the people saw the fulfillment of that with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar when they were overthrown, when the temple was destroyed and the nation taken captive and brought into captivity. And, and God made it plain. It wasn't a guesswork because it says the vineyard is the house of Israel. God's looking for justice, but he's seeing corruption. He's seeing a cry for help when he's expecting worship towards him. Justice and righteousness, instead oppression and a cry for help. So the, the people in Jesus' day could look back to what God had said and see that it had been fulfilled and that the owner has the authority to build and also to tear down. And Jesus, remember, he had said, not one stone is going to be left unturned. That's why he was weeping over the city, because it would be destroyed, because they did not know the day of their visitation. So back to Jesus' parable now in Luke 20, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir, come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. After three of the servants had been beat up and abused, the owner of the vineyard sent his beloved son. And I like that. He says, probably they will treat him with respect. He, he's pretty sure that when he sends his son who's going on his authority, they're going to listen to him. They will receive him and give him the fruit that he was looking for. But those vine dressers, they were incorrigible. They saw him coming and they thought maybe, 
oh, the owner's passed away. He's coming to take possession. If we kill him, we can have it all for ourselves. I read in the Enduring Word commentary, Morris said, in a day when title was sometimes uncertain, anyone who had the use of land for three years was presumed to own it in the absence of an alternative claim. So the owner's far away. He's been away for a long time. They've been on the land, and they're thinking, this is our chance. This is our opportunity to enrich ourselves. And so they cast him out and killed him. And Jesus says, what do you suppose the owner will do when he hears about what they did? He will certainly destroy those vine dressers, give it to somebody else. And the people are like, certainly not. It's kind of like, it's unthinkable that the vine dressers would be so awful to, to break the, the covenant that they had made, to lease the land, to withhold the fruit, to shame and beat up the servants, then to kill his son, that they would pay for their, with their lives and that it would be given to someone else. It's like when you watch a movie and it's such an unsatisfying ending and you're like, that was terrible, that was awful. It was so like, it was just an awful thing. And they're like, no, 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 this is a bad story, Jesus. We, we don't agree with this at all. Certainly not. Now, the interpretation of the parable, it's more explicit in Matthew 21, 43, because it, this parable is also included in Mark and Matthew. It says, therefore, I say to you, Jesus said, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So that just was like a dagger where they go, no, 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 we're God's people. You're not going to take the kingdom of God away from us and give it to another nation? No way. It's not going to happen. The owner, he sent servants many times to receive the fruit. God sought fruit for the kingdom of God and Israel through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was looking for faith in his own son and he didn't see it. It wasn't there. They refused him. God sent prophets like John the Baptist to the scribes and Pharisees who refused to repent or even acknowledge that his baptism was of God. Then God sent his own beloved son. In the previous chapter we read, they sought to destroy him. Think about this. What did the priests, scribes, and rulers do when Jesus asked them a question about John's baptism? It says they reasoned together. But look what they did here in the parable. The servants, it says they reasoned among themselves what they should do. So Jesus is taking aim directly at them, calling them out in this parable, like you think you can enrich yourself by killing the Son of God. That you have, can lay a claim to the kingdom of God by killing his son? So the kingdom of God will be taken from you, given to a people who bear the fruit of it. The king of kings, Jesus Christ, has come. The work of God is to believe on him whom he has sent. Jesus sought the fruit of faith, repentance, confession. Fruit of the spirit produced when someone believes in Jesus and is born again. The Jews had a privileged role in the kingdom of God to bring people to faith in God. And there's Jesus, the Son of God, standing in their midst. And they were seeking to cast him out and to destroy him. They believed they were the ones with authority. But Jesus is there who has all authority in heaven and in earth. Man, I would not want to be those tenant vine dressers when the owner hears about what they heard about what they did. 
And then Jesus in verse 17, it says, then he looked at them. So now he's looking back to those scribes and rulers and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Jesus turns his attention to them, quotes from Psalm 118. The farmers rejected the owner's message, messengers and his beloved son, and the builders rejected the stone that God had sent, the one that he chose as the chief cornerstone. And Jesus connected the farmers with the builders who rejected the stone in Psalm 118, 21. It says, I will praise you for you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. When Solomon built the temple, he had the stone quarried far away. He, he hallowed that place where the temple would be so that he didn't want the sound of tools or the sound of work to be heard from the site. So he had the rocks quarried miles away and then brought and assembled on site. And the imagery is there was a stone cut by the quarry, in the quarry. It was delivered to the job site, and they've already built a, a fair amount of the, the structure, and they're like, where does this stone fit? You know, they'd put a marking on the stone and fit it with the plans, and it doesn't fit anywhere. This is a mistake. And so they rejected this stone. They're like, this stone has no use. It, maybe it's for another job. Maybe it's not for this job at all. The dimensions are all wrong, but the, the stone that they rejected was actually the chief cornerstone. It was the most important stone in the whole structure because it was the foundation stone that would link two walls together. And they thought it was rubbish, so they threw it out. The priests and the Pharisees, they believed they alone had the authority to determine sound doctrine, but in rejecting Christ, they missed a foundational truth contained in the law and the prophets that Jesus is that chief cornerstone, that rock of salvation that unites Jew and Gentile together in one body, the church. For the Jews, to them, Jesus was a reject, a stone they stumbled over in unbelief. He didn't follow their plans. He, he didn't do what they thought the Messiah should do because he came humbly and meekly, but it was the Lord's doing who does all things well. And Jesus says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, there is a, a variety of ways where these words have been interpreted. All commentaries that I saw agree with the second part. That's very clear. There's some who spiritualized the first part. Um, it was uh, David Guzik. He says, Anyone who comes to Jesus will be broken of their pride and self-will, but those who refuse to come will be crushed by Christ in judgment, which is true. Uh, that word broken, it's to be shattered in pieces like a pot. Okay, if you fall on that stone, you'll be broken. And if, if we fell on a stone from a height, our bones would be shattered. Um, I think in context, it's good to see it as there are some who stumbled over that stone in unbelief. And there are also those who will be crushed in judgment by uh, the Lord, those who reject Christ. So if you could turn to 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 6. 
we'll see this uh, confirmed. One Peter two, starting in verse six. This is Peter speaking. He says, "Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture: Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and." a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which also they were appointed. It would be bad to fall on a stone and be shattered. It would be worse for the stone to fall on you and to be ground to powder. There's a permanence there. Um, It's like if you're ground to powder, that's someone that is lost and gone forever. I mean, there'd be just nothing left irreversible, permanent judgment. Praise the Lord that when we are broken for our sin, it's not like the, all the, what is that thing about Humpty Dumpty? Like all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again? Well, when we're broken for our sin, the Lord is a healer and a restorer and he makes us new. So God is able to do what man cannot do. But in this case, it's like the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they stumbled in their unbelief, and they would be judged permanently for it. Now, while the sayings of Jesus are are not always easy to understand, his intent and what he meant was not missed by the people he was speaking to because it says they knew that he was speaking against them. Verse 19, it says, And the chief priests and scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. I love that Jesus spoke with them. He looked at them because he loved them despite their unbelief and sin. So when the Lord looks at us, will we meet his gaze today? Will we behold him in faith knowing that he is God and all authority he has received of the Father is from God? I think of the priests and his listeners. They all had different motives for listening to him that day. And maybe we come to the word with different reasons, Um, different things going on in our lives, different questions we're asking. The rulers, they questioned Jesus' authority, and Jesus exposed the poor stewardship of the authority God had given them of the kingdom of God. The owner sought to receive fruit from his vineyard, and Jesus sought the fruit of faith in those to whom the gospel was presented, but he did not find it. So I think, what does God, what is God looking for? He's looking for that belief in me, and does he find it? Does he find it in you? Does he find faith and trust and reliance upon him right now? Or worry and cares and upheaval, deceit or unbelief? Will he look upon us and find the fruit of the Spirit in us today? Jesus said in John 16, 33, In this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Recently, we've been dealing with COVID crisis. Many are preoccupied with what's happening in the U.S. with elections, or people have lost loved ones, people facing uh, health battles, family struggles. 
So he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome. Do we believe that? Do you believe that he has all authority and that he has overcome? And is it shown by you being of good cheer because you trust him more than even how you feel? He says to all of us, be of good cheer, whether the financial outlook is bleak or bullish, regardless of political intrigue, whoever wins state of origin, or whether we're at home or in hospital, we can be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome and he's my king and he's your king. And we can call God Father because he loves us and he's given us the gospel. He's given us Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. For Christians, Jesus is the true vine to whom we're connected as branches. It's like we can be fruitful because we're connected to him through faith. It's he who sustains us physically and spiritually. He gives us all we need. And he's the source of eternal life and abundant life today. So we got to keep that perspective of who Jesus is. It's so critical. More than what we have to do, it's him. He is our all in all. And Jesus tells us, he says, abide in me. Implied is that we may trust him, we may believe in him, but we might not always abide in him. We can wander from him. We can forget about him. We can be caught up in the cares of this life. Jesus says in John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. I can plant a tree, it might not bear fruit, and I blame myself as a poor uh, gardener. But what God makes fruitful will be fruitful because it's him doing it. Jesus, he is also the good shepherd. He protects us, he provides for us. Do we recognize his voice when he calls to us or do we run away from him? Do we go our own way? Jesus said in John 10, verse 9 through 11, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to kill, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus is not speaking for God here. He is speaking as God to you and to me with all authority in heaven and on earth. In anything that you're facing right now, we can have on divine authority, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel Jesus preached. Believe on him, you will be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior, that he is the I Am. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the door through whom we must enter to eternal life. He is the good shepherd who's laid down his life for the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life. Lord, cause us to believe this, to live it out day by day as we abide in you, as we look to you, as we are glad and rejoice because of all that you've accomplished and all that you're doing and that we can have a part in your plans, that we can call you Father, that we have a home that you're preparing for us in heaven. And whether our 
pilgrimage be long or short on earth, Lord, we have all eternity to spend with you in your praise and worship and adoration. I pray, Lord, we would start adoring you now more than ever, looking to you, trusting in you, believing in you. Lord, it's a complicated world and we are complicated beings. I pray you would just make things so simple, so clear, to show us our desperate need for you today, our desperate need for salvation and help, comfort and peace. Without you, Lord, we cannot have the joy of the Lord. We cannot have peace that passes understanding. We cannot be forgiven. There is no way we can be saved. We are like those ground to the dust underneath that chief cornerstone. But Lord, you have done a miraculous thing in sending Jesus. Thank you that when we believe on him, we will never be put to shame. Thank you that we, uh, we have you and you have us. And we will someday know you as we are known. Lord, we love you. We rejoice in you. Lord, may we walk in your presence and abide in the vine. Thank you that you make us fruitful and that your plans are good and that uh, we can look to Jesus who persevered in the face of adversity lest we be weary and discouraged in our souls. Oh Lord, how great you are and we love you in Jesus' name, amen.